0: hello and welcome to this sustainable wine podcast this is a recording of a conference session that took place on the second or third of june 2021 as part of sustainable wines future of wine americas conference 2021 we'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference bsi bodega argento jackson family wines international wineries for climate action and avena thank you to all of those groups for their important support and i hope you enjoy the session in this session uh, we're going to talk about what the wine industry can learn from outside its own little bubble because like every industry the wine industry thinks it's special and it thinks it's unique uh, and uh, and uh, can learn a lot from other industries and we talked a bit about this yesterday when we discussed the announcement of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable which we've, uh, we've started and we have a lot of experience there from outside the wine industry, because there's a huge amount that can be learned from the mistakes of others. Um, and boy, have those mistakes been made uh, again and again in spades by a number of uh, commodity roundtables and a number of industries. Um, And so there's a lot that can be learned. And we're here to talk about that today with an excellent panel. So really looking forward to the conversation. Just a reminder for all of you, um, this is being recorded as audio only, and we will release it as a podcast. So if you want to get the uh, sessions from the conference, just go to your podcast app, search for sustainable wine, and they will be automatically downloaded or they will appear in your app in a couple of weeks. It will take us a couple of weeks to to get the processing done. Last time we did a conference, everybody emailed us the next day asking for the recordings, which was terribly uh, um, complimentary. We're very happy about it, but we just couldn't do it that quickly. Um, However, this time we're not doing video, um, so that should make it a bit faster. So that should happen all in the the next couple of weeks, and we will be in touch about that. And uh, let's get started with our our first session about what the wine industry can learn from, from other uh, other industries so um, I'm going to do a quick round the room uh, according to my screen so Ignacio let me start with you uh, just briefly
1: uh, who you are and, and what you do. Sure absolutely so very good morning to everyone so my name is Ignacio I lead the sustainability practice of an organization called the Consumer Goods Forum we basically bring retailers and manufacturers together for uh collective action and positive change. So what I, what I would like to share with you is basically our experience dealing with a lot of the members in, in the procurement of commodities upstream and what has happened historically on that space. As you would imagine, our membership is the Walmarts, the Krogers, the target, and also the, the big manufacturers like Pepsi, Unilever, and the likes. So thank you again for the invitation.
0: Thanks for coming.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me, Toby. It's such a pleasure to be in this great conference. I'm an environmental researcher and campaigner, and also a knight, as knighted for my environmental work. And mostly, I have focused on trying to end deforestation in commodity agriculture. So looking a lot at trying to end deforestation in palm oil, beef, soy, cocoa, rubber, and try to reorient these big agriculture industries towards a nature-positive, uh, deforestation-free model um, that's also respectful of human rights, both labor rights and land rights of Indigenous people and other forest-dependent communities. Um, and so I'm also a wine enthusiast. A lot of my family historically has been in wine in France.
0: Great, thank you, Tell Let's come back to the nature positive concept because we've discussed that yesterday. It's just the latest uh, paradigm, isn't it, for business? Uh, just when they'd sorted out their net zero strategy, now it's nature positive. Um, you, you don't often feel sorry for really large companies, but on, on that one, I certainly
3: do a, a little bit. Uh, David, uh, next up. David Grayson, I'm Emeritus Professor of Corporate Responsibility at the Cranfield School of Management in the UK after having been uh, director of a centre there for corporate responsibility for a decade from 2007, 2017. Most of my adult career though has been spent uh, not in management education, but uh, at the Culface as a practitioner, advising, working with companies around the world in responsible business, corporate sustainability. So I started out in this field very young, quite a long time ago. Thank you. David's very modest.
0: He wrote one of the first and best books on what used to be called corporate social responsibility many, many years ago, which is uh, on everybody's reading list still today as a, a highly relevant uh, book, along with many others. So, David, looking forward to hearing more from you in a minute. Caroline.
4: Hi. Yeah, Caroline Herman. Um, uh, based in Washington, D.C., um, and I've been practicing environmental law um, since 2000, uh, primarily for the US government uh, with the Environmental Protection Agency. So, the bulk of my experience is in suing polluters um, and really understanding uh, the enforcement and compliance uh, framework. Uh, Before that, I worked uh, with um, a couple of multinationals, I was at a law firm, and I was general counsel at an environmental nonprofit. So, um, so I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of corporations. Um, from different angles, whether it's the enforcement side or whether it's the uh, more supportive uh, compliance side and everything in between, and, and looking for opportunities to go beyond compliance um, to, and and, um, and really think creatively. Uh, you know so most of what I have done would would not have been considered what we call sustainability today, but in fact, working with all of the environmental laws on the books, um, I look back and I'm like, yeah, That's exactly what we've been doing. So delighted to be part of this panel.
0: Thanks, Caroline. It strikes me that some of the pollution issues around vineyard runoff were some of the reasons why some got started in this space with uh, you know, looking at um, outflow from vineyards into rivers and estuaries and the impact Absolutely. on fish. So that, that, you know, that's a, r- a highly relevant issue. Well, um, delighted you can all join us, looking forward to the, the insights. David, let me start with you. you know, you've written a number of great books and, and some recently on on leadership, and, and uh, you have this advantage of looking across industries and looking at how leadership is responding to sustainability pressures in, in a very dynamic way. So just Be great if you could open with some thoughts on that and how how you see that as relevant to to the wine industry today.
3: So first of all, I'm passionate about having a future for the wine industry as a good customer of the industry. I want it to continue to to thrive and continue to to innovate for a good few uh, decades, uh, at least to come. I think first off, just to say seriously that um, sustainability has of course the three pillars, Yes, the environmental side is really important, but we mustn't forget also the social or the economic as well. And for me, what we're talking about is essentially helping any business, large or small, to have the best chance of being able to continue into the indefinite future. And I think any company that is serious about that today has to recognise this is now a fundamental business issue is an issue of survival it's certainly an issue of prosperity of helping to build resilience and I think what I'm seeing from leadership companies uh, across the world is first of all that they are being very clear about what is their wider societal purpose why are they in in business what are they in business to achieve really uh, something to be um, focused on I think very hard by boards and senior management teams. Secondly, of course, being clear about where the company has the most material impacts, both negative impacts, social, environmental and economic, but also where it can accentuate the positive impacts. Because what Caroline was just saying, this is not just about risk mitigation anymore. This is about opportunity maximisation. Thirdly, I think flowing from being clear about what are the most material impacts of the business is having... A strategy that covers the totality of the business, increasingly also its value chain, which addresses those most material issues and where the strategy for sustainability is increasingly inseparable, is, is really the same thing as the overall corporate strategy. And what I'm seeing leadership companies also now recognizing far more than perhaps 5, 10, 20 years ago is the reality that you can have a really good, powerful purpose, you can have a strong, comprehensive plan, but if your culture isn't right as well, if you haven't got a culture which is really um, about emphasizing empowerment and engagement of employees to give of their, their best to be responsible, to be accountable, transparent, ethical, and so on, where innovation and sustainability are inextricably interlinked, without those Crucial elements, then you won't really be able to make great progress. The other two key key things they play very much to what Ignacio is going to talk about in a moment um, in the Consumer Goods Forum, which is a great example of a whole industry, several industries working together on a collaborative basis to find common solutions around sustainability. There's no doubt that we're seeing the best companies really being prepared to collaborate with a whole range of of other businesses. And the leadership companies finally are talking up, speaking out and speaking up around sustainable development and and social justice. Those, I think, are some of the key lessons from other industries.
0: Thanks, David. Let me put a question to you, which we can park for a minute, maybe you can come back to, which is one one of the things that excites me about the wine industry and sustainability is the industry has a tiny footprint compared to all the other issues industries but it has this amazing ability to communicate and to punch above its weight is is I think that's a boxing term um and I'd love to get your thoughts a bit later on how it can leverage its position in culture to to influence others and I think that's a really important area the industry has to get to grips with because that's how it can really leverage its influence to make a big difference once it's once the own house is in order of course um so perhaps we can come back to that point from you Ignacio um You've just been on the phone with a CEO of a major consumer goods company. I'm not going to ask you who that was or exactly what you were talking about, but you know, you're know you in touch with all these huge companies that are under enormous pressure, um, both from a resilience point of view, but also from a consumer activist point of view in terms of what the demands are of the modern customer. But what are your insights on, on what the wine industry can take from from the front lines of consumer goods?
1: Yeah, sure, so uh, I think in general, um, the, the new consumers, millennials, generations that uh, expect products to be ethically sourced, fairly traded, kind to the environment. That's that's the key. So companies are responding to that. We've dealt with a good number of issues related to commodities in the past, over the past 15, 20 years, mainly around the impacts caused upstream where these raw materials are produced. So let me pick, for example, on on, on palm oil. and and some of the mistakes so first of all the oil oil palm tree is uh, for those that are not too familiar uh, grows in regions around the equator is a tropical tree is perennial like the vines and produces bunches of fruits out of which you extract the oil super high yield super efficient palm oil consumption uh, is is the most consumed vegetable oil in the world I can assure you 50% of the products that any of you will get from the supermarket contain palm oil. Whether it's a sliced bread, cookies, chocolate bars, cereal, lipstick or shampoo, it does contain palm oil. The production is linked to deforestation and human rights abuses, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia. And since the early 2000s, it's been a focus of major tension for industry, NGOs and government. So what what typically happens um, with this uh, crisis uh, with upstream raw materials, on the first phase you have A crisis is striking, something big and ugly happens. Allegations, protests, guilty parties are usually found. Companies act defensively. They are not the problem. They're only part of the problem. Uh, Companies try to make a good thing out of a bad situation. Money starts flowing into a few iconic projects, but the problem is not solved. It's just covered up. Then you have a second phase where activism continues. Companies are tired. At this point, uh, first movers start changing the game, companies start to realize that this cannot be solved by them alone. So that's when collective action comes in. That's when we at CGF and other organizations come in. Collective action, only way forward. This is when uh, platforms like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, uh, and I'm sure Etel will talk about that in, in a minute, but uh, it brought producers, buyers, NGOs together. Sustainability standard is created. It doesn't solve all the problems but at least it helps to bring some complex issues like biodiversity, fertilizers, inequality, climate action. It it brings them to a group that can discuss it. Uh, Sometimes these platforms are very slow to respond, did little, Mm -hmm. industry was not behind, the communication was wrong. However, any formation of our own table has a fantastic value, which is bringing all the actors together. Then of course, on the last phase, you have a critical mass, Companies align, share an overarching goal, sustainability can become the new normal and a true qualifier in the marketplace. Of course, there will always be laggards. So in my view, to avoid mistakes, um, uh, I think you must help define sustainability in wine. You need to create some principles, criteria for global standards, uh, and it has to be collaborative um in order to get any change dialogue advocacy must happen with all the actors involved not just one sector on it i'll stop there toby
0: thanks very much ignacio uh some really helpful insights there um, and uh, we'll come back to many of those points uh etel uh over to you um really interested to hear your insights from a deforestation prevention and, and other commodities perspective um so tell welcome
2: thank you I was really mulling over how to compare and contrast what we can see happening in other spaces, other commodities and wine. And um, I thought of eight things that I would just pop through really quickly. And one is something that Ignacio kind of alluded to, you know, the wine industry can learn from other industries that have been hit very hard campaigns, often run by campaigners like myself, Uh, you know, we've done things. I used to work at Mighty Earth and before that Greenpeace, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International. You know, activists, when companies and industries don't respond, will do things like Massive petitions that create a lot of reputational harm and consumer anger, uh, shareholder resolutions that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to a company. I remember we banded together uh, with a number of NGOs and drove down the share price of a palm oil company, it was just talking about palm oil, by 15% in 30 days because of their deforestation and their human rights violations you know, we've organized mass protests. I think one lesson the wine industry can learn is don't wait until Greenpeace has thousands of people crawling around on your office, you know, building and dangling down from cranes uh, and don't wait until your customer base is outraged, right? You know, palm oil has gone through a, a kind of demonization and a lot of that's because of these deep problems that weren't dealt with fast enough. So the wine industry can learn and just leapfrog and not wait not be on the receiving end of massive reputationally risky campaigns that will hurt the industry. Um, I think that's lesson number one. And the second lesson is the wine industry does so much better than a lot of other industries on traceability, right? by its very nature, it's got this you know, single origin uh, DNA that, you know, is, is very different from, say, palm, cocoa, coffee, other commodities that trash the planet and drive deforestation. So that's, I think, one of the strongest points that the wine industry should capitalize on very quickly, right? You know, there's been this enormous push against companies in cocoa and coffee have led some of those campaigns to force industry players to become traceable and transparent on that traceability. The wine industry has already got a competitive advantage so the question is how do you combat the fraud the opacity the problems that do persist which are real how do you capitalize on what the wine industry has as a competitive advantage vis-a-vis these other commodities and create a unified online platform where it's not just that individual vineyards are traceable because they're single origin, but where customers are empowered to have visibility on what they're buying. So kind of unified one stop shop transparency on the traceability. That's something I think that the wine industry could leapfrog on. Then let me just like uh, talk about something a little bit harsher. I'm sorry, because it can be jarring to have an environmental advocate in a panel. but. You know, the wine industry is doing terribly on certifications. I have to be honest here. You know, most wine certifications are grossly inadequate. First of all, because they don't cope with the number one climate problem that wine has, which is packaging. So you have companies that are organic or biodynamic or this or that. First of all, they're all quite chaotic and not aligned around the world, which creates customer confusion and eventually disillusionment. But the second thing is they're missing the elephant in the room, which is packaging. And David, David had a great point about human rights and this growing awareness of Me Too and Black Lives Matter and gender equality and, and, and racial dynamics, you know, almost none of the wine industry certifications have a holistic approach that takes into account the human rights issues and what Ignacio was saying, traceability, as well as human rights. And then what I was saying about the packaging. So yeah, there's certifications that are in chaos, um, that are grossly inadequate, that are not aligned. And I think that is something that can be remedied. Um, you know, the sustainable round table, the sustainable wine round table is the fantastic step towards bringing order out of chaos. So again, instead of, um, Experiencing what uh, palm oil with RSPO and cocoa and coffee with the Rainforest Alliance roots fair trade certification problems experienced. Just, I think my advice would be for the wine industry to look at what's happened abroad in other industries and learn and leapfrog and coordinate and harmonize. Then I'll just zip through some other things super quickly. The wine industry by and large has a pretty bad take on renewables. And you, know, you look at a lot of other companies in different spaces like the SBTI, the Science-Based Target Initiative, and Toby, you'd mentioned Race to Zero. So many other industries are going for 100% renewables and they're doing it on a very rapid timetable. You know, We're talking about like 2025, 2030, where is the wine industry commitment, which by the way, should be made ahead of COP26, which is gonna be in Glasgow in November, I would expect the entire wine industry, all associations, to make a strong pledge ahead of COP. We're going to do our part. We're facing climate chaos. We're facing a mass extinction. What David is saying about the urgency of the planetary emergency is real. How is the wine industry going to step up on renewables? You're really far behind. That's, um, I think, something that's pretty easily remediable because as david was mentioning the technology is now in our hands right to make this work um, and then yeah uh, i would say wine has got a not fantastic approach to chemicals land and water those are all kind of embedded in 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 a single pack if you will um, and i mean we we know that like for example in france something like less than five percent of agriculture is is dedicated to wine but maybe as many as as 20% of the pesticides are used for wine. So wine has a disproportionate responsibility. And Toby, to your point about wine having a strong cultural impact, it's this aspirational, culturally vital thing that many of our, 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 our family dinner rituals and things revolve around. How can wine lead the way on a better approach to chemicals across all agricultural spaces? That's really the question. And yeah, then the the workers' rights issue and the packaging issue. You know, I started out by saying wine has this competitive advantage built into its DNA of traceability and single origin. And I'll end with something a bit more grim. I hope that Caroline can bring us onto a higher note at the end. But the grim note that I was going to end on is that by its very DNA, by its structure, the way wine is, you have a packaging problem that's unique. You know, cocoa, coffee, soy, palm oil, these things are distributed in bulk. Wine doesn't get popped into giant containers so much, right? So how can you cope with this? You have an Achilles heel, just the way you have a competitive advantage on traceability, you have an Achilles heel on packaging. And there, I regret to say, there aren't so many lessons that can be learned from other industries. You know, what Ignacio said about palm oil, I could talk a lot about cocoa and coffee and other things as well that have evolved. It's just not so true for packaging. So there we need what Ignacio had mentioned, co-creation, a lot of dialogue, everybody coming to the table. The time is now. There's urgency. This has to be sorted ASAP. And it's going to be something where the wine will have to forge ahead kind of as a leader and a little bit as a first mover alone.
0: Tell, thank you. Here's an idea that I'd like you to think about and comment on the viability of a bit later. What if the wine industry committed, vineyard by vineyard, producer by producer, to source low-carbon glass uh, with long-term contracts or with some sort of uh, buying signal, so that the glass industry could work on the big Achilles heel, which which it has, which is fossil fuel use in glass production. That's where. lot of the impact is and of course there are lots of other issues with recycling and reuse of glass bottles and there are other issues with other forms of packaging as we know but you know you can't do it all at once i was wondering so have a think about this i'll come back to you. you know could the industry say right we as an industry will commit to buying low carbon glass send a buying signal to the market could that help the glass industry move faster to lower carbon production Um, that's something to think about. I'll come back to your comments on that in a bit. And of course, anybody else on the panel, Caroline, uh, over to you. Um, Really interested to hear your point of view on, uh, on what can be learned. And and of course, being an MW yourself, um, you know exactly where the wine industry challenges are. So really interested to hear your point of view, Caroline.
4: Sure. Um, Well, I just have to say from what Ignacio and Etel have said, you know, the first thing that came to mind is the recent Royal Dutch Shell uh, court case where they're ordered to reduce their global emissions by 45%, uh, by 2030. And that was, that was activist shareholders. So watch out you know that definitely works um but i just uh i don't know if any of uh you have had a chance to look at david's book all in and i just i love that title you know i think everyone on this webinar is already all in um we're thinking creatively and expansively um about sustainability but equally we have to remember there's a lot of producers and industry members that are not all in, right? <laughs> They're not considering sustainability. And that's for a variety of reasons. Um, it can be willful, it can be overlooking it, um, you know, not not here to judge at the moment. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about developing sort of a standard or a certification for the the wine in- industry that would be sort of an overarching framework, you know, it reminds me of the overarching laws that we have in our countries. Uh, The difference, though, is that laws carry fines and penalties for violators. Um, And the point of that is to serve as a deterrence for future violations uh, with the end result to create a level playing field. And it's only when you have a level playing field in your sector that you can have fair competition and, in fact, innovation. Um, And so I've spent my career as uh, a a federal environmental enforcement attorney um working within that system um both to enforce it and and to ensure compliance with it um so i'm not suggesting that the wine sector adopt the whole fines and penalties approach you know this is as has already been said it's an industry that absolutely prides itself on collaboration and open communication with its neighbors and other stakeholders, and obviously customers, and um, most importantly, I think a real willingness willingness to learn um, and change. But you know, maybe in terms of lessons learned, or, or simply just looking ahead, you know, as countries begin to codify um, their climate policies and concepts into enforceable law. Uh, there's no reason to think that the wine industry won't be implicated. Um, last September, New Zealand was the first country uh, to require that the financial sector report on climate risk. Uh, it's, it's the TCFD reporting requirements. Um, and what it does is it brings climate risk and resilience into their corporate decision making, and they've got to report or explain it. The UK, EU, Japan, Canada, Australia are all working towards climate reporting. The UK just got closer very recently. Uh, Two weeks ago, the Biden administration here in the US just um, issued an executive order on climate reporting. You know, I just don't think it's um, out of the realm of possibility to think that at some point in the future, the agricultural sector, the beverage sector, you know, all of the sectors that the wine industry touches upon. Will be somehow um, under these same sort of regulatory frameworks, and so it's just it's just another tool I'll throw uh, <laughs> I'll throw into the box um, or, or or something to consider as as we move forward. There's a lot more to be said about lessons learned from various um, enforcement cases that I brought. Um, uh, that you know I'll I'll try to keep it really short. You know I think. Number one, um, as has been said at this conference, sustainability is no longer an option. It's absolutely a requirement, whether it's mandated by law or not. Um, and that may be coming very soon. Um, in all of the enforcement cases I brought, we had to consider the social and the governance in addition to the environmental. Uh, we had, you know, workers and factories that absolutely had to be considered. And really when it came down to it, the settlements were based on governance. Um, there's always going to be trade-offs in every decision that you make um, and what we were looking for as uh, environmental enforcement attorneys was the best benefit for the environment what the defendants were looking for was the best financial business decision and what we had to do was find a way to come to to, to figure out where those two points met and come up with a with a settlement um, in order to resolve the violations, um, put in corrective action plans moving forward um, and and get some resolutions. So even though we do need to be collaborative and come together, we're not always going to be coming at it with the same motivations. And I think that's important to remember. Not all of us have to be tree huggers. I'm a tree hugger, but uh, we, we don't all have to be in order to find a shared purpose and a common goal. And then finally, there's the big issue of um all of the pollution that has gotten externalized you know how often are little wineries paying for the carbon that's generated from fermentation tanks you know are we really thinking about that or are we externalizing that to to our consumers and with that i'll stop
0: thanks very much i read a really interesting quote on that by jances robinson who said that um dr richard smart the australian climate wine expert he posited that what would consumers think in the modern world, if they could look at vin- uh, look at wineries when fermentation was happening and see this, and if they could visualize these clouds of CO2 coming out of wineries during fermentation, would that be socially acceptable?
4: It, and I think that's a
0: brilliant it, question it, to ask.
4: It's so true. I used to work on uh, oil and gas enforcement and what our inspectors would do is they would stand outside the fence line and aim their infrared cameras at the smokestacks And what you could not see with a naked eye, but you could see with infrared cameras, was devastating. It's plumes and clouds of pollution that we just don't even realize.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting idea of visualizing pollution, isn't it? And there was a lot more um, activists and websites and technologies enabling us to do that. Um, Caroline, let me ask you about the potential for human rights risk. I know you're more on the environmental side, but I've been running modern slavery and human rights conferences for about 20 years. And we, until a couple of years ago, we were doing them in New York every year with Freshfields, And we'd always get homeland security um, and customs and border protection and others to come along, even during the height of the lunacy of the Trump administration. Sorry, I shouldn't say that's not my country, but it did seem a bit mad to me. Um, We still had these enforcement agencies coming to meet 50, 100 companies in New York and, and, and actually just standing up, I remember every year the guy from Customs and Border Patrol would stand up and say to the companies, I am waiting to bust you guys on slavery issues and human rights issues. Give me a reason, please. And I'm giving you now a direct incentive to take to your boards to tackle these issues. And it was great, you know, because these companies were like, oh, well, Previously, I'd have been really scared about that, but now I've got ammunition to go back to my board and my shareholders and say, we need to tackle these issues in the supply chain. And then we saw, you know, recently, Syme Derby was banned from having palm oil come into the US for human rights reasons. Um, And there's a rubber glove manufacturer from Malaysia that's not allowed to import into the US because of human rights accusations, unfair or otherwise, it sets a bar. And I wondered when it comes to sort of vineyard workers and the human rights issues in the wine industry, when we're talking about that a bit at this conference, but not that much. So do you think that's uh, an area where much more action will be forthcoming and, and much more risk needs to be managed?
4: It's it's hard to say, and there's um, what you've been talking about is very complicated. So a lot of the, um, the migrant worker issues would be um, under state law, so the individual states, rather than federal law. But what I can say about the imported products – that you were mentioning, um, I work daily with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and and mind you, it's it's two different branches. They they look at movement of people, but they also look at movement of goods. And I think that's really what you were talking about. Um, there is absolutely um, uh, uh, people that I work with that are very uh, that are monitoring daily um, human trafficking, uh, forced labor, goods, and. Um, it, it, it sometimes it can just um be a matter of priority within within those agencies
0: yeah it certainly seems like an area that needs to be tackled and we are talking about this and of course lots of vineyard owners pride themselves on having the same workers come back year after year and really trying to take care of them and you know i heard of i can't remember which vineyard it is now but they're getting so micro managing in the vineyard they have one worker per vine And it's their job to care for that vine in particular. And I was thinking, what amazing margins you guys must have to be able to do that. Isn't that wonderful? You know, can you imagine that Ignacio in other areas of agriculture? no <laughs> um, uh, so uh, really interesting. Um,
4: I, I, will, well, I will say that there are um, there are importers and there are members of the uh, of the trade that are um, putting pressure on their suppliers to disclose their labor practices. They are able to put those policies and statements up on their website um it's 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 exciting and it's changing, and um the the whole point is just getting the message out there.
0: Yeah, there's a good question from Pam here, just to build on that, Caroline. Um, are there other um, regulatory approaches coming down the pipe soon that the wine industry should, should be cognizant of? Or have we kind of mentioned them all so far? I'll come to you in a minute to tell on that.
4: Um, at the So specifically at the federal level, there's so much going on that's hitting us every single day, I, I can't even think straight anymore. Um, basically, under the new administration, every single federal agency has a new mandate, which is to consider climate. And I think that's a large enough umbrella to encapture, to encapsulate a lot of the activities that the wine industry is, is part of. So, um, guardedly, yes. But I, I can't say specifically.
0: Yeah, there's a lot happening, isn't there, before the midterms. <laughs> I tell.
2: Yes. I was going to say there's a law that was just passed recently in France, which is called the Devoir de Vigilance, the Duty of Vigilance Law. It um, covers every company that's French that has over 5,000 employees. And that means that big beverage companies like Pernod, Ricard, um, but also all French supermarkets, you know, Casino, Carrefour, Super U, all the big supermarkets. Leclerc um, is an exception because of its structure. But uh, almost all the, the, the major French supermarkets are covered by this law. This law would transform the wine industry if it were enforced and it's very new so I anticipate it will be enforced but according to that law you have to disclose publicly every environmental social and health harm in your supply chain and you must take steps to mitigate all those harms and you have to disclose everything you're doing to mitigate the health harms the human rights harms uh, and the environmental harms so the French wine industry is just waiting for the next shoe to drop any day, an activist, a worker who's been poisoned, an organic farmer whose crops are being contaminated, a beekeeper who's worried about colony collapse disorder could go ahead and sue every major French wine company. So I think that the the French devoir de Vigilance law is here, it's real. And there's also the Lieferketten Gazette that's coming down the pike in Germany. There's so many laws that are being discussed now to transform sustainable supply chain management. You know, the other industries that I see are very aware of this, palm oil, rubber, cocoa, coffee, soy beef, they know, but the wine industry seems to be missing in action. It's like they missed the memo that the legal reforms are coming.
4: I'd be really interested to know, and you don't have to answer this, but I'd be interested to know if the French laws implicate imports into France. So, for example, for U.S. producers, do Mm -hmm. our U.S. producers now have to be aware of these laws and make sure that they are are in compliance?
2: That's brilliant, Caroline. And the answer is yes. If you're a French company that's large enough to meet the threshold requirements of the law, every single element in your supply chain down to the third-party suppliers is covered. But I think You know, we're straying from Toby's original point, which is that, yes, there is a lot of legal requirements that are coming down the pike, but we're also in a planetary emergency. If we don't fix the climate chaos crisis that is coming, we are all gonna die. Our children and our grandchildren are going to die. So irrespective of whether you would get a fine or go to jail, I think it's incumbent on the wine industry to start thinking with a great deal more urgency and a much different sense of responsibility about how not only it can meet the minimum requirements but lead, which is what David was saying back at the beginning.
0: By the way, everyone, ATEL is also available for children's parties um, if you need... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Ignacio, I have a question for you, but uh, David um,
3: wanted to come in here. David. So I wanted just to emphasize, yes, I think there's a lot more legal pressures coming along, and essentially it's what the economists say is about internalizing the externalities, um, which has been sort of needed for quite some time, but... I think there's there's some even bigger pressures in a way which is investor pressures. So for example in the first quarter of 2021 2 billion that's with a b not an m 2 billion dollars a day went into ESG environmental social governance which is another way of expressing sustainability billion a day went into ESG funds. So I think we're going to see a lot more investor pressures. And at the same time as the the Shell court case, which, yes, to answer one of the chatroom questions, was brought by seven environmental NGOs, I think something like 17,000 citizen activists, and is only um, applicable directly inside the Netherlands and so on, although it's a very important straw in the wind. But actually, I think even more significant at the same time was the vote in the ExxonMobil AGM led by a terribly tiny investor with 0.02% of all of the shares in ExxonMobil. But nevertheless, they persuaded the big boys and girls like BlackRock and Vanguard and so on to vote for three new non-executive directors who are there to try and shake up and push ExxonMobil, a you know, huge global company to move much, much faster on sustainability. So I think there's really strong investor pressures and we haven't begun to talk about the Generation Z and the millennials and their attitudes as employees wanting to work for organizations with, with purpose.
0: Yeah, thanks very much, David. Um, I was lucky enough to work with uh, Jancis Robinson and her, her, and her team on her sustainable wine um, writing competition. And when we looked at the shortlist and the eventual winners, um, it was a fascinating process to go through. Um, and the ones that really went big on purpose and culture were all the ones that were shortlisted. And of course, they had the performance underneath, but that was really, really key. And you know, that was only a small group, but it was an experienced group of wine writers and me, bizarrely, um, who, who looked at that. And it, it was really clear that that was a major driver. Um, Ignacio, let me, let me ask you about um, how and why consumer goods companies are asking for more regulation and due diligence. This earlier point, I saw a letter just the other week, I think Ahold sent it out, um the the Dutch supermarket and they had about 50 signatories asking the EU for more laws on environmental due diligence for imports why are they doing that and is there a possibility that could disadvantage some smaller players because you know I always get a bit suspicious when big companies call for regulation I always think are they trying to level the playing field a bit here and actually that means air advantage sometimes because they're already doing it so they want everybody else to so tell us your thoughts on that and how, how it might be relevant to wine
1: it, it's and a quick remark uh, to a point on the French law, the European Commission is considering it. So it might be a reality for 27 countries instead of just France. So if you're exporting into Europe, this might be the new reality. Switzerland took it to a referendum and it didn't go through because of so much pressure from corporations not to disclose, to be transparent. Switzerland, different animal. But uh, um, so uh, level the playing field is, is is the key behind. We've seen it with uh, things like extended producer responsibility for plastics. Companies feel alone in this thing and they say, well, why am I the only idiot paying in here? Let's, let's make this the industry norm by bringing it to legislation. Why am I the only one paying certification for imports? Why am I the only one taking the heat for all of this? When in reality, if you look at soy, 35 million tons of soy come into the European Union. 80 million tons go to China. Um, if there's no legislation, it comes down to each company certifying its own bids and doing all the legwork. So I think when corporations go to ask for legislation is because they're mostly fed up and they think the issue is at a point of maturity where it can be part of law. I see people nodding. So
0: <laughs> Thank it's, you. Yeah, I mean there's a good question here about the smaller producers side of things, and that's that's a massive challenge, isn't it, across the world. I mean, a lot of wine is made by small producers, a lot of palm oil is from small producers, a lot of coffee is from small producers. Um and, and, and we often feel like they get left behind, and that's actually where the you know support can make the biggest difference. I wondered, Ignacia, if you could cite any examples of companies or industries where they're they're trying to take the smallholders with them. In a more coherent way. And um, you know, in wine, for example, there's loads of growers who aren't winemakers. They don't have the margins. They're simply grape farmers. You know, they they sort of appear at the bottom of the list a lot of the time. So I wondered what your thoughts were on examples yep. we could look at there.
1: And 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 you've organised great conferences around smallholders. So it is it is it is a big issue. It is a it is uh, companies. The more the more transparency you get into your supply chain, the 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 more work you 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 end up doing with small farmers. Take a commodity like soy, it's usually very large farmers but you take another one, vanilla for example, the work that many corporations have done in Madagascar with very small farmers. Uh, Coffee I think is another good example and it's, you know, at a macro level, let's take it out of the corporations. It's it's redirecting subsidies to the right sort of, uh, you know, let's, let's, if you're Danone, if you're Kellogg's or Unilever, that's fine, you can work on your supply chain, you can you can build some sort of capacity in-country to work with your vanilla, your cocoa, your coffee. But you need to start working at policy level as well. So subsidies start going in the right way, because uh, the subsidy policy is a mess anywhere in the world. Uh, so that's the smart way to redirect money to those who really need it to scale up. And there was a question on the chat. Uh, about this. And, and the, the, the short answer is, of course, small farmers don't don't have the cash to do all of this regenerative agriculture that is coming. It's a daunting task. If you happen to be scope three for someone on the SBTI, how are you going to decarbonize your operation? There's a lot of money in there, but redirecting funding uh, from subsidies is important. And also there's a lot of uh, money available in in the marketplace right now, with green bonds and things like that. Let's start talking to the finance sector. Uh, stop worrying about the excellence of the world. Focus your money in the things that will really get you, in the short-medium term, a better result. And small farmer could be one.
0: Thank you, David. Uh, let me bring you in here. Um, companies Companies have long said that they don't like politics, but they will get involved when it suits them. There's been a lot of corporate hypocrisy over the the decades here. Um, But now we're really seeing this urgency around reforming some of these broken subsidy and incentive systems, even though companies are quite obsessed, you know, they're uncomfortable with it. And you see these Harvard Business Review pieces, don't you now and again saying, companies should stick to doing what they do best and not get involved in politics. And the FT occasionally runs a piece on it, but it's happening. Um, Is it happening fast enough and and is there an opportunity for the wine industry to to try and help government create better frameworks?
3: So I would draw a distinction between what we think of as conventional corporate lobbying, which, of course, goes on all the time all around the world. And it can be done responsibly or irresponsibly. And if it's done um, responsibly, that's about what you're lobbying for and how you're lobbying it. But what Mark Lee and Chris Coulter and I wrote about in our our book, which um, uh, Caroline was kind enough to mention all in, we talked about advocacy by businesses. And we think advocacy, it's not just a play on words, to use some different language, but advocacy is where businesses are speaking out, speaking up, around sustainable development, around social justice, taking a much longer-term perspective there, advocating for policies, and and certainly Ignacio is absolutely right, switching the kind of the subsidies and the tax regimes to be pro-sustainability, pro-regenerative, and I suspect we'll see quite a lot of pressure in both the Biden uh, Covid recovery plan and in the EU recovery plan to have very strong uh, green credentials uh, in in there. Um, But also I think if a business individually or a whole industry sector are going to be advocates, then there are some kind of critical success factors. So it has to be authentic. It has to be consistent with what the organisations are actually doing. So you can't have, you know, do as I say, rather than do as I do. So it must be part of a a consistent set of of, uh, activities, by an industry buying individual businesses um, you have to make sure that you have got your your own house in order and there aren't any kind of real nasties um, inside your own operation or your or, or, or your supply chain I think you know, you have to be able to explain to your different stakeholders why this is relevant and if you're going to take a very, very controversial stance. And we obviously saw a lot of that in in the US during the Trump presidency with business leaders speaking out over things like Charlottesville and and the the whole Black Lives Matters uh, movement, particularly after the appalling murder of of George Floyd. It has to be something where you can um, explain the rationale. And I think it's gonna be really controversial. You need to make sure that you have briefed your board, you've 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 got um your key institution investors to understand why you're doing this and how this is not a one-off, it's not suddenly waking up in the morning and deciding to do something in a particular way. It is because this is part of a long-term coherent plan around commitments on on sustainability. Um, I'll
0: stop there for the time being. Thank you. Um, Yeah, brief further comments on this, and I want to move on. Um, Etel and then Caroline, uh, if you want to add anything. Etel first.
2: I was going to um, speak to that point that you raised, Toby, which had been put in the chat about the cost for small producers and small holders and the more vulnerable, smaller, less affluent actors in this space. And I think we could think of it as a menu, you know, appetizer, main course, dessert There's a whole range of things that people can do to be sustainable that cost less or nothing. There's a kind of misapprehension that everything green is more expensive, and that's just not true. So often, you know, renewable energy can actually pay for itself and then give you money over time. So if you're thinking about it, you know, in the two-month horizon, it's expensive, but if you think about it in the 10-year horizon, you make back the money. There's a number of things like gender equality and treating your workers with dignity that are just free, you know, it's the right thing to do and it doesn't cost anything. Having every single label printed on recycled paper, all the cardboard boxes made out of recycled paper, these things are cheaper actually often than using the virgin materials that make a wine, transportation, etc. more costly. You know, even electric vehicles, right? There are now electric vehicles that are excellent, that are cheaper than other things on the market. So that's sort of the appetizer. Every vineyard, every actor in the wine sector should be going for the low-hanging fruit that's financially easy to take on, even for a small group. And then there's some things that I think go back to this question of the sustainable wine roundtable, And Toby, the reason it's so important to come back to that, and I think all of us keep hammering on this in a way of of talking about the chaos and the disorganization in the wine space, is that you get huge economies of scale when you band together to find collective solutions. So let's be honest, there's no way to deal with the wine bottle problem effectively without collective action. Right, of course, individual companies could stop going for super heavy, actually very expensive bottles and pretending that that makes their wine better. That's like an easy thing, but to really get into reusable bottles that takes collective action, right? Because you all have to start going for certain kinds of bottles that can be reused at scale. To go for all recycled materials, or Toby, what you were talking about, the embedded carbon in the glass production that the wine industry could force a change on the glass industry for. That's something that you can only do when you band together and you have the power for group action. And I would even say, you know, what Ignacio was mentioning about how do we flip harmful subsidies into positive subsidies? That's the kind of thing, again, you really can't achieve that as well and as fast without collective action. But I think what's important to remember is that when you have collective action, that sustainability solution suite can be unlocked and it becomes very cheap. You know, Ignacio knows this better than I, but the soy industry has one shining light where there's no deforestation essentially for soy in the Amazon. It's called the Grupo de Trabalho de Soja. They do it cheaply, they do it well. They cut deforestation for soy from like 30% to around 3%. It's been working for over a decade. And the reason it's so cheap and beautiful is collective action.
0: Thanks very much. Um, Caroline, I wanted to see if you had anything to, to add here. And then David, I know you had your hand up as well, but Caroline, just wanted to bring you in in case you wanted to add a comment here.
4: Uh, there's so many great comments that are being made i I can't even keep them straight so just back to atel and david's point um you know what what gave me a lot of um encouragement over the last four years in in the u.s was that um, even though at the federal level, the federal leadership was saying, you know, we're going to um, get rid of all of our regulations and uh, get rid of our um, environmental requirements and and make, um, you know, car emissions, uh, you know, not count and, and things like that. It was still the private sector uh, that was saying in fact, we've already budgeted for these more environmental or sustainable practices, um, and it would cost us money now to to try to loosen everything up. And so, I really feel, you know, to, to the to the point that everyone's making, you know, it's the private sector and and the NGOs um, that are that are actually driving so much change. And and it's wonderful when we've got uh, government engaged and involved, but but it's nothing that we can really count on um, all the time. And then to David's point. Um, w- w- my experience has been that um, you can have a CEO or a head of an organization that is completely all in and and on board with sustainability, but the sticking point is the middle level, and it's really working to get buy in at that middle level because. You know, you got folks there that are just—they're working on budget, and you know, they don't really get you know human rights. That's just not part of their portfolio. So, uh, to David's point, it's 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 kind of a holistic communication within your organization before you you reach out. In in my opinion,
0: absolutely, yeah. I mean, in large companies—the ongoing transformation of both marketing and procurement are absolutely key. They really are, and um, it's extraordinary how these old legacy systems are, are still. Uh, still going on I mean we're doing a lot of work with big companies around smallholder farming um, outside of wine to try and help procurement transform into becoming an organization that uh, that drives sustainability for the organization rather than has it slapped on top of it and and, you know the great thing about companies focusing on scope three carbon emissions in the supply chain is that means they have absolutely no choice but to undertake that reform because otherwise it's not going to happen. You know, if you're Nestle, 77% of your GHG liabilities are in scope three, and a lot of that's in the supply chain, you have no choice. So
3: anyway, uh, David. So just to respond to Caroline's point there, absolutely right that in many, many organisations, particularly the larger ones, middle management is a real challenge. That's not because middle management are bad people, or they're ignorant people or anything, but it is that, that they've been given a job to do, and the incentives very often that the organization gives them, what they get rewarded for, what they get called out for, etc, means that they are not going to be necessarily acting in the most sustainable ways, which is why, as an integral part of getting the right culture and getting the right strategy in place, you must look at your incentives and your rewards and recognition schemes so that they are reinforcing and not undermining the commitments around sustainability. Absolutely non-negotiable on, on that. I did want, though, to try and move us on a little bit, because we've rightly been emphasising an awful lot the environmental challenges, and Itel is is right to keep reminding us of the climate emergency. But that's one part of a bigger picture, I think, particularly for the wine industry. And that's, I think, we also need to be very aware that after COVID, which has so brutally exposed in many countries, health inequalities, I think we're going to see, post the pandemic, a great deal more interest in healthy living, in how we improve Um, the health of different societies. And we have to recognise that the misuse of this industry's product, I emphasise the misuse of this industry's product, is bad for health. So I think that there is an opportunity for the industry to get ahead of some of the debate and really talk about how to be drinking responsibly and so on. I know that there's been, for several decades now, alcohol industry more broadly has been doing to greater or less uh, efficacy with greater or lesser genuine commitment, let's also face it, um, they've been doing responsible drinking campaigns. But I think there's going to be a renewed urgency around that social side as well as on the, the environmental side.
0: Yeah, I heard somebody in the industry, I can't remember who it was, uh, say that they, the biggest threat around to wine is the anti-alcohol lobby. And, you know, you look at the Lancet stuff um, run by some real fundamentalists in many cases, you know, trying to ban alcohol and so on. And I know Ignacio, the Consumer Goods Forum, there have been some real fights going on around alcohol and, and so on. I wondered if you could comment on that. Um, I don't, I'm not asking you to name names, but uh, we need to finish up in a minute, but I'm just curious to your
1: views yeah. on that. No, no, absolutely. We um, we we have an entire group dedica- dedicated to health and wellness where the, the members kicked out the alcohol companies, basically, because we have one big initiative around advertising to children and it didn't go well with the message, obviously, to have some alcohol companies sitting in their arguably some of the other companies selling incredible amount of sugar, salt, sodium. Um, that was a pushback from the industry. It's like, you know, my my product contains in the case of one 12-14% alcohol, but if you look at your, your percentages of sugar, salt, that's precisely what we're doing now, focusing on that. But alcohol was taken out from that discussion.
0: Yeah, like I'm not saying sustainability provides a uh, a solution to the anti-alcohol lobby. And clearly moderation is really important, but certainly it's, it's uh, moderation has to be that issue that's, uh, that's brought in. Uh, but I mean, the, the rest of the alcohol industry has that same problem as well, of course, you know, hard seltzers and spirits and so on. We have to finish up, but I said I would ask uh, Etel and David to respond to the questions I put earlier. So let me ask you to do that. Etel, let me turn to you first. Um, the idea of uh, the industry sending a buying signal to the glass industry, any further thoughts on that? in terms of uh, perhaps not necessarily an easy win but something that could be done how realistic is that idea
2: oh, toby i think it's a beautiful idea you know in an ideal world all the sustainable wine movements and micro entities and certification schemes would come together in the round table and put an offer on the table for the glass industry and for packaging generally, and have a co-creation process with a lot of consultations up and down with experts in transportation and in wine and other kinds of packaging, as well as farmers and producers, and come up with a multi-pronged approach where number one, you would move as much wine as possible to cans, which is already happening with very cool, hip wines that are aimed at a younger audience with a lot of wine going into... Um, barrels when it's being delivered to, you know, restaurants that are doing it at scale with all kinds of really creative solutions about reusing bottles. Is it possible to have a more standardized set of bottle shapes and then the distinction comes from a seal that you can put on the bottle or the beauty of your label. But, you know, co-creating a whole host of options of which the jewel in the crown would be a large push from a large part of the wine industry to a large part of the glass industry, throwing down the gauntlet and saying, number one, we want wine bottles that are made out of 100% recycled glass. Please give us that if you can. And number two, we want you to really start thinking creatively and strategically. Sit down with your engineers. How can you get us wine that is almost zero energy? You know, can, and, and are you going to go for renewables as well? because we're looking at the full, you know, as um, the, this very trendy idea of a circular economy, we're looking at the full circular economy aspect of our wine industry. And that includes you, you're part of our family, your problems are our problems, let's fix it together.
0: Thank you. And if there's one piece of packaging that has the space to communicate a bit more about sustainability than just an, an eco label, it's it's wine packaging, isn't it? Let's face it. And what a missed opportunity that's been so far. David, final word to you. How does the industry punch above its weight and help change the world beyond the wine industry itself?
3: Well, I think you've just answered it, Toby, by speaking directly to end consumers and by getting its own house in, in order by Getting on the front foot in terms of sustainability, I think it can really help to enhance the the image of of the industry and then to go out out and be proactive in in talking about it and those wineries which are making this an integral part of their their, their purpose and their strategy, um, I think will have an advantage on this. Thank you, that's a great note to finish on. I'm sorry
0: I've eaten into the break by five minutes uh, uh, so, but I think you'll agree with me it was worth it so we'll take five minutes after this for our next session but join me in a virtual round of applause for our panellists or an excellent uh, group and what a, a superb bunch of insights thank you so much Ignacio, Etel, David and Caroline we'll take that five minute break now and the recording of the session will be available afterwards but uh, for now thank you all very much indeed